And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. If you would like to be a sponsor of the Planetrillion Trees podcast, please see our website at theplanetrillionreespodcast.com and click on the Sponsors tab. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. We'll be receiving our new Monheim Microphones soon, and we're very excited. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on December 16th, 2022. With more than 14 years in the horticulture and arboriculture industry, Rob Schout joined Casey Trees, an urban forestry nonprofit, in March of 2018. He has contributed to the operation efficiency and the expansion of their scope of work. Thanks to the leadership of Rob, Stormwater low impact development and best management practices are now an integral part of the Casey Trees portfolio, along with tree installation, pruning, and maintenance. Previously, Rob completed the two year professional horticulture program at Longwood Gardens in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, studied at the Royal Botanic Garden, Edinburgh, and received a Bachelor of Science from Clemson University in business management. He spent five years working as a project manager and garden designer for Shimizu Landscape Design, a Maryland-based design and build firm. He worked for two years as a project manager for Cotswold Gardens, a design and build firm in Westgrove, Pennsylvania. Rob is a certified arborist and tree risk assessment qualified. He is currently a member of the MACISA Board of Directors and the Tree Fund Board of Directors. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Rob. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Eva, it's a pleasure to be here. Hal, good to be chatting with you as well. Very cool. You know, to jump right into it, Rob, we just would like to have uh, an opportunity to tell our listeners who you are and uh, what your path has been to the work you do today, youthful experiences, and did education play a part in that as well? Sure. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, as I, as I think about it, I think looking back at my youth, things that may have shaped me, I think it was a little bit unknowingly. I grew up in Glen Echo, Maryland, on the uh, kind of on the Potomac River. Spent a ton of time hiking around, swimming around, kayaking. 
And I always, always appreciated, always loved sort of the transition from neighborhood city to woods, forest, and river. And it, it wasn't something I thought, okay, this is going to be a future for me. <laughs> you know, it was just something that I could feel as I, as I changed activities, if you will. So I think that was really sort of impactful for just something that positioned me or pushed me towards, you know, horticulture, arboriculture, that, that in general. I also had a buddy growing up named Bevan Shimizu, and his father was a landscape designer, and his mother ran the Botanic Gardens in D.C., and they were just neighbors to me, but I got to know them and have a fantastic garden. And, you know, it was like transitioning, walking over to their house. It's like entering a different kind of like place and or sort of like environment. And that also, I think, was very shaping. So I think those things just really like impressed upon me moving into an industry. I just appreciated being able to spend some time outdoors, et cetera. So I think those were two, two impactful sort of things in my life that led me to arboriculture. And let's talk about Casey Trees, because it's an organization that does many things. Just tell us about its mission, and how did the organization come to be, and how long has it been around? Yeah, it's been around 20 years. be 21 here, coming up next next calendar year. Started off as, as a very small organization, some money from Betty Brown Casey, who, who recently passed, who is our benefactor, and Love Trees, her husband Love Trees, and she gave some money to the Garden Club of America to start, you know, she read a Washington Post article that just said the the tree canopy of DC was declining and her and her husband Love Trees. And so that that was kind of the impetus for Casey Trees. And we we were young and we were small and we were, you know, six, seven people and just have continued to grow to uh, 65 people currently. And our mission is to restore, enhance and protect the canopy of Washington, DC. So we do that through installation, through maintenance, through education of the youth and adults. And maybe one of our biggest pieces is, is policy, you know, just sort of being able to influence some D.C. laws, protecting trees, recouping monies to go towards trees if trees are removed. So that's kind of wh- where we've been able to sort of make an impact in the district. You're much like the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society's position in Philly. It's almost like a it's like a mirror that, you know, if every city had an organization like that, we would be in great shape. Yeah, I, I agree. I wish it all, they all had them. And your classes that you, I've taken uh, several classes with Casey and the classes are excellent. They're really stellar. And, well, thank you. you know, you're, you're taking classes in a different community like Washington and you're getting a different vibe and feel for what you're doing down in your area, which I think is critical for other tree people to uh, pick up on. And I know Hal has done this. He's traveled around the world taking classes. And and that really makes a huge difference as to how you view the immediacy of what we need to do. Indeed. Indeed. The other thing that I think about people taking classes is they also will, will tend to become volunteers. So yes. This cohort of people that you can sort of collaborate with and utilize, you know, everything from tree planting, tree watering, pruning, we're, we're doing, we're applying for a grant for heat mapping and, you know, it requires three shifts through the day, but tons of different drivers. And so we're going to lean into, you know, our volunteer cohort and our citizen scientists who have been just so helpful through the years in, in our reach. So when we talk policy and legislation, of course, the city that is going to come to mind is Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> what, what makes Washington, D.C. unique in terms of having an organization with such high visibility, arguably, as Eva was saying, it's a hybridization 
that is very exciting in terms of the nonprofit sector and urban forestry outreach and arborist services. Let's talk about that a little bit. And also, this is a good time to talk about the legislative initiatives of Casey Trees. Yeah, absolutely. We've planted thousands and thousands of trees. Um, you know, we're going to hit 50,000 trees here shortly, and we've protected trees, and, and we've done, you know, educated many. But arguably the most important factor, I think, in facet of our organization is, is our policy and our ability to work with those volunteers that we just mentioned and write in if a bill is up or a bill we don't agree with or something along those lines and have a huge contingency in the community. And, you know, we've, we've had many impactful uh, pieces of legislature passed, maybe most importantly, um, tree protection. So a special tree is, you know, 44 inches in circumference, a heritage tree is 100 inches in circumference. And, you know, they, they can't just be taken down, whether it's private uh, or D.C. public land. So you have to get permits, you have to do these things, and, and the money that, you know, has to be paid goes into a tree fund, which is then used to plant trees all over the district, predominantly residential, private, private property. So, you know, it's run by our good partners, at the Urban Forestry Division. They're part of the District Department of Transportation. So spawn with them running uh, street trees, schools, parks. Uh, so they get you know funds from people and then they, they put it into grants that we utilize to plant privately because they're a government agency and not able to do that. So it's a really good partnership. And I think that level of involvement in the policy has made huge impacts on our tree canopy and, and preserving tree canopy and then adding to it as well. You know, that's one of the things that I noticed when when I was at your symposium, that there was great interaction between different organizations during that conference. And I, and I really think that that's critical for success. And I know when I used to do a lot of PR for our organization, nonprofit, for greening in our community, the newspaper always used to say, how many groups are going to be involved in this project? And I said, right. oh, four, oh, four, that's like front page news. You know, <laughs> if there's four groups, the more groups you have involved, the more newsworthy it is. And you always have to think about that too, because the more you're in the front of the public, the more the public recognizes you as a leader. And I think that's Indeed. critical for, for an organization like yours. No question. No question. We've certainly curated through, I think, a lot of hard work, like a very solid brand in the Mid-Atlantic, in D.C., in arbor culture, in NGOs, forestry, et cetera. Excuse me. And you're, you're right. It, it's so important that that's how you're seen. It's, I mean, it's wildly advantageous. Couldn't agree more. Rob, you had said, I think this was in a recent email that, you know, trees are only as good as their survival rate, which is something that we all need to remember as we plant, plant, plant. Can we talk about species selection? Uh, I appreciate that Casey Trees has a vision for let's plant trees that are going to survive. And maybe along with that, talk about what goes into where you're planting with respect to questions about climate justice and equity? Ooh, totally. A lot of things, a lot of things to sort of like unpack and yeah, go into sure. there. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I think first and foremost, you know, in terms of the maintenance or in terms of the, the survival, it, everyone wants to know how many trees you planted, but it's what's that tree doing? What's it look like in five, 10, 15, 50 years? So first and foremost, but then at the same time, What's more impactful, you know, a tree planted in, you know, a forest that would maybe regenerate on its own or, you know, in D.C., maybe on the east side of the city where there's 
huge heat islands and much lower tree canopy. And that's correlated to all kinds of socioeconomic sort of like measurements as well. So that tree has more impact. So we're trying to focus our attention on the areas where our trees would be most impactful, first and foremost. And then with that, we're trying to put a tree in that will survive 5, 10, 50 years. And, and what goes into that is, I think, a lot of different things. Certainly right tree, right place. So, you know, you're, you're not planting an oak under a power line, but you're not planting a red bud in the middle of a field. You know, <laughs> you're trying to utilize the opportunities you get and, you know, wet feet and sunlight and all those different things. But I think it's also really important to think about the provenance of like where, where things are coming from. So, you know, I'm trying to get more Southern nativity liners and, and seed material getting trees that go to our farm that are from the South and, and that, you know, grow, the, you know, growing zones are starting in DC and moving South rather than starting in DC and moving North. So, you know, in five or 10 years, let's try to play with some trees that are going to be on the very, very Southern range of um, survival so that as things get warmer and we have more drastic climate events that they can handle it. Whereas they're not just holding on. It's fun though. You get to play. Like, let's, yeah. let's try to sneak some live oaks in in a in a little <laughs> bit of a you know in a little bit of a kind of secluded area from big weather events. You know that type of thing. So it is fun, but it's really just thinking for the future, talking, being educated, always trying to learn more. I certainly you know there's so much for me to learn. Um, but yeah, picking trees that will survive the inundation of water and the drought, the salt, but more just. The hot DC summers, humidity is very high, and so is the temperature. So, but it also dips down and can be 25 degrees. <laughs> so, we need to pick trees that we that can survive. So, it's all species selection, trying to learn, but certainly trying to pick trees that are going to be here in 50 to 100 years. No question. The question I have for you, because of climate warming, and DC was built on a swamp. What kind of mitigation do you have to do? when you're making those selections or do you have to do any mitigation with soil? You know, what, what are some of the things you have to deal with? Because that, that to me was the first thing that stuck in my mind. You said salt. Do you ever get any salt coming in from the ocean at all or no? No, I don't think so much there. Just any roadside conditions can be, you know, heavy sort of oil, gas, salt, that type of thing. We certainly have very, you know, some low zones that they can get very flooded. You know, there's a lot of infrastructure going into our stormwater system, which is great. But yeah, at times we'll have to do soil mitigation. I mean, we try to plant, this kind of goes back to Longwood. I used to get kind of like a funny rap, even with my friends that they always said that I loved warrior plants. <laughs> I loved plants that could just kind of handle the rugged. So, you know, we try to use trees that can handle the, the variance and conditions, you know, I mean, elms, honey locusts, catalpa, you know, things that can go wet, dry, shady, you know, high sun. So we're trying to pick things that, that don't need super specific microclimates. We do remediate soil to some extent, but we really try not to because we it's just, it's a huge level of effort. It's like, at what point are you just, you know, making a microclimate in the soil and then it has to move on. So, so we try to pick species that can handle some of the tougher soil. We do soil kind of like excavation and experiments before we go. We're not sending it off, but just trying to get a sense of what we're working with. We use a soil moistening agent. It's called Zeba. It's really used in like big ag for the first 12 months to hold moisture in the soil. And we've anecdotally seen good results from that. We haven't done, you know, a, a specific scientific experiment. We're working with Bartlett Tree experts partnering on many different different research venues, or but 
we haven't done anything specific, but we have noticed that that's been helpful. That's been that's been good for the installation transplant success. Yeah, we've noticed that the tree diapers work very well because they absorb the rain and you don't have to go fill them back up again. And they have the water crystals in them. And yeah, you know, I, I you know, I don't want, I don't know how I feel about those. To be honest, I they're a little. So this is starch based. Those are polymer based. Um, yeah. So I don't really know what's going to come of those in time. And, and in fact, we've actually even moved away from like the gator bag or ooze tube bag. Yes. I just feel like, listen, you can water the tree. How do you water the tree? You put water on the tree. I mean, not to be super simplistic, but I don't love engaging that much plastic for each tree unit. And I've just, I've seen that if you are committed, you can, that tree will survive the first two summers. And then there's zero plastic, zero pretensive girdling. That's just a personal opinion. I've, I've also seen many people there at every conference I go to. I think they do good things. I just would love to just not introduce any plastic if, if possible. Sure, sure. That, that makes perfect sense. Do you use, ever, use any corn gluten or anything like that as a, as a, um, a wedding agent? Yeah, just this, this, it's a starch-based product, but the Zebo we use, and we just mix it in with our backfill put it back in and that's that. And it's, uh, it's, it's used in kind of like agriculture in, in yeah. some lower income places. And if you get, it looks like couscous. And if you get it wet and yes. you look at it on yes. the soil, it, it just kind of like, it becomes a gelatin. Yeah. Yeah. You have jello in your soil. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty much what's happening. So with your tree species, tell us a little bit more about your favorite rugged four wheel drive type trees for Washington, D.C. Yeah, so I mentioned a couple. I'd say hackberry is another one. Yes. I prefer because, you know, you'll find areas where there is tree canopy, but it's getting some dappled shade. So you're trying to get something big that can fire up, but can handle some shade where you don't always see that with with all your oaks. And and hackberry is fantastic. Obviously, elms just crush it in so many different places. Um, I mentioned honey locust as well. There are some good oaks that like, I mean, willow oak does really well here. Um, mm. I know that's like kind of a, a good old fashioned one. I mean, places here are moving a little bit away from kind of the, the red oak family. Yes, um, yes. White oaks are having some level of challenge. Um, I'm a big sycamore fan, but those have their own sort of issues as well. Bald cypress can handle a little bit of shade, which, which gives you a little bit more splendor. Very good with, you know, sort of storm damage. They, they don't really accrue much. Um, Kentucky coffee tree crushes it. They look a little awkward. It's like they're like a lanky teenager for a while before they grow into themselves, which sometimes people don't love, but you know, and you can get the the, the decaf, which is funny name, um, because some people don't like the fruit pods. But um those are some like good old yeah staples we we like to use for sure. I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but those that's that's some good ones. Do you ever use the male Osage Orange? You know, we do. And we're actually like toying with the idea of starting to grow that. Yeah, it's a great, really, great one. really. Yeah, exactly. And it's looked at to, to be good moving forward, you know, with emissions rising and that type of thing on some research and, and some reading that we do. So absolutely. I mean, I like it with the fruit, but obviously for many Me reasons, <laughs> in, certain, in certain areas, it's not really acceptable. <laughs> well, and, and you, you could probably find some areas that you could put females. Oh, definitely. Definitely. More naturalized areas. Yeah, I'm very lucky because I have that Osage Orange called White Shield that is sterile. And uh, it's actually right next door. Uh, So I've planted it with the neighbor and had the opportunity to watch it perform over the past three or four years. And it is a lovely tree with dark, glossy, 
shiny leaves, a great rate of growth. It'll be fun to see how it behaves, you know, with the structural pruning. It's a little leggy and and shooting all over the place. <laughs> yeah, that's the one we're going to grow, White Shield. Yeah, right. I'm a fan. I love hearing your stories or the, or actually your anecdotal observational research about things that are doing well, because I do think of D.C. as actually being hotter and uh, arguably more difficult than what the Philadelphia microclimate is. Right. It really does. I mean, the, the, the variance is so, it's so wide that it's tricky because the planting season gets kind of shrunk, you know? Anything in June has become fairly, like, weather-wise, pretty oppressive for, like, installing trees. September can be very hot as well. So you're sort of, like, starting to really get rolling in October, and then you never know what January and February are going to hold. They, they yeah. You know, we plan to install them, but we have to have very flexible projects, you know, not the projects that need to find timelines, very flexible ones that we can bail on for five to seven days if it snows or the ground freezes. So you're dealing with the high heat, high humidity, but potential for big frozen ground swings and really cold temperatures. So it becomes tricky. Now there's always pruning and things to do, but the goal is getting trees in. The, the season feels to be shrinking is what it feels like to me. Yeah. I noticed you mentioned catalpa, which I think is a really good tree. And the other one I was thinking of. Rubinia? Oh yeah, black uh, locust is fabulous. Yeah, really the purple tough. robe will do sometimes. Um, with the purple flowers, which are nice. Uh, is that what you were thinking yeah. of, Rubinia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, those are good. I mean, I, I recall you had a, If I don't want to speak for you, so feel free to correct me, but you, you had a, a very expansive view on sort of good tree species, and, and I always appreciate that. I remember that as, uh, as you as an instructor. Some people aren't as keen on Rubinia. I think it's like a little seedy, but it's from this area, so I'm all in on it, you know? You can yeah. get a cultivar that's, you know, going to have good, nice bark and not injure a dog or something. Now, do you have any hickories down there at all? We do, totally. I love planting hickory. We don't grow hickory, and you'll see more and more people aren't growing it. I, I noticed that at the par- Partners Conference out in Seattle this year, discussion on just like, what do we do about the species that people don't want to grow because it takes so long, you know, beech, ginkgo, yellowwood, hickory being probably the top one. Like, how do you subsidize it? How do you get those in there? Because it just takes so long. Transplant success is so low. Only in certain areas can you really plant smaller stuff like hickory. You know, you can get in the, the taproot can, but it's pretty small. So, yeah, I love hickory. Uh, we, we do plant it, but we do not grow it at our farm. Are you familiar with the Miyawaki method? Have you used any of that for your any of your areas that needed intense planting? Yeah, we're we're pushing that right now. We're like, We've sort of had tentative approval from some of our, you know, agency partners trying to sort of mix and match like funding. So like working with Sugi, they do some funding of those projects, but they're, I think they have a big queue of projects. But our DC agencies that we work very closely with, Department of Parks and Rec, UFD, DCPS, DOE, Department of Energy and Environment, the schools, Urban Forestry Divisions, they, they're all into it. And it, it's an exciting opportunity. We're my landscape architect who's on my staff as well, because we do garden work as well. We do green stormwater infrastructure, so rain gardens, bioswales. She's really keen on it, and uh, we're trying. We have not installed one yet, but we're very keen on it. And I think in the near future, 2023 is, is my goal to get one of those in. 
Well, and what I was going to say is those are the best ones to plant your hickory because you can use small ones. They compete really quickly. Right, they'll compete well. And that Mm. forces them to grow quick. Right. It's a great point. That's a great point. I love that. Um, Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting plant. But also, you know, there's always so much concern about maintenance and and mowing around this and that, that one's just kind of like set it apart <laughs> and see what happens. I mean, that's the beauty of it. There's a lot of preparation in terms of soil and, and, and getting things right. But then afterwards, it's just like Darwin, you know, <laughs> go that's get them. Exactly, that's exactly right. And, then, you know, in areas where you're not as concerned with the actual look until they right. get developed. I mean, it could be along a, uh, a highway somewhere where you really need to have a buffer maybe to keep the animals in or to keep them off the road? Yeah, I've been targeting sort of like afforestation segments of forest. You know what I mean? Yeah. So just like kind of taking over some turf grass that's not being used, you know, probably keeping a two-path mow lane for the beginning of it just right. for invasives and seed bank and stuff. But, you know, maybe putting it 12 feet off of a forested edge and just having a nice naturalized area where it's like that's no one in – 10 years, no one will even notice. You'll just have regained forest. But if you just mowed it, you wouldn't get good species diversity. You'd have invasive, that type of thing. Right, right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And the the techniques I think people are coming up with are, they, they've been experimenting a lot with a lot of different things. But um, as they find what works best, that's the, the people like yourself are the ones who need these techniques to really push the the greening in, in communities they may not have uh, the type of greening that they, sh- they, they need to have. For yeah, absolutely. I think, and take this with a grain of salt, because I have not installed any and I am not experienced in it, mm-hmm. but just from a standpoint of looking at it as sort of like a contractor or installation sort of urban forestry, the remediation of the soil seems to be too big an effort. Taking out like a meter deep soil and just completely replacing, it just seems like such a larger lift when like, I just wonder how necessary that is. If you could test the soil, incorporate good soil, solarize it, and then install, it feels like a lot lower effort. And hopefully, again, pick the right, you know, warriors, as I've discussed, and it might, and it might work because that's a lot of soil to, to move. Well, I think originally in the one, the one gentleman that we interviewed from the Netherlands, he was saying that they had such heavy clay that they couldn't plant directly and because of the right. different species they were using. But I think it could be done very easily with leaf litter, uh, maybe a year ahead of time and right. and soften up the soil and then come in with your, your layers of, of... I think that would just make your proposal so much, you know, more advantageous because it would just be such a lower level of effort and, you know, just the disruption you're causing for the site, I think is it, people get a little concerned with it. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. At Casey Trees, Rob, 65 employees, you are the director of tree operations. Uh, how many hats are you wearing? And uh, do you dream about your job at night? <laughs> Pretty much this hat all day, which I guess this isn't going to be visible because we're not going to be on video, but this three leaf, uh, two bars, bars and stars, DC kind of swag yeah, very hat. handsome. Yeah. <laughs> that's yes. pretty much the hat except yeah it definitely changes angles probably a couple times a day sure do dream about it <laughs> you know I think as we've grown it's like I've just I you know I just feel so confident because of the team I have I mean I just think my team is so good and so I owe so much to them and, and maybe that's you know actually maybe that's like my most important job you know 
maybe just building a team because it's a very diverse group. We've got 15 people that are wearing high-vis every day out in the field. Um, super experienced, many, many arborists on that team. A lot of, you know, tree climbing, tree installation, landscaping, horticulture, all kinds of experience. And then I have a, a group of sort of designers, foresters, you know, work with partners, do business development, kind of curating projects. I have six of those and someone managing them. And then I have a, a whole data team, which, you know, is doing all of our GIS work, you know, kind of trying to target installation areas that we should go to based on all of these things we talked about in the beginning, geolocating every single point for grant reports for our own historical survival study knowledge, working on invoicing back-end work. And I have three people on that team. And then I have a landscape architect who does our green stormwater infrastructure. So those are kind of the four legs of our chair. And some, you know, are involved in a lot and some are a little bit more isolated, but there is a lot. And then, you know, just trying to build a team and, and, and make things work and target the areas we need to target. But for me, I feel like if I build a good team and day in and day out, the crew gets back with a smile and they were like, you know, all went well today. I feel like at least for that day, I, I did my job. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. when things get squirrely that I feel like it's on me because it's never really on anyone else to me on me you know if something goes wrong so i just i want smooth days for everybody involved <laughs> i remember correctly if i remember correctly those days that were really tense in class you you would come up with a joke that would make it <laughs> yeah and it seems like most of your path has been in groups so you have that skill of being able to work within a group but also to lead a group and I think that's really important because then you you kind of go into the group and you can work with them side by side and then then you can, you know, be the head at the same time. And yeah, I, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. That's, that's nice. You know, I feel like that's been a lot of my life, regardless of what you're on, you're on a team, you know. And so it's always what can I do to make you a better teammate, a better player, put you in the right position to succeed. You know, people have different skills and different avenues that they excel in. So really you're trying to get them in the, the avenue that they enjoy most, that they're coming to work fired up and that they're going to produce because that's mutually advantageous. <laughs> you know, that's good for me, but you're also enjoying your life and your day to day. So yeah, putting people in the right place. Um, yeah, so I think a lot of sports, Eva, but a lot of sports, I feel like there's just that's, like a that, team. That could be too. And the, the other thing energy. is too, that there's really not anything negative about a tree. No. Unless it falls on But you know, you have to convince people that sometimes. I mean, you'll be shocked. I mean, the, who's going to write these leaves question, man? Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, you'll be shocked, but I hear you. The people who come to, to work, you don't have to convince, that's for sure. <laughs> that's exactly right. So you have a good team that way. Yeah, we got a good team for sure. They're not, and they're not dirty either. Compared to, <laughs> compared to humans, we are the dirtiest oh, creatures oh, on the face of the earth. I mean, just mow up your leaves and that's, put that's, them in the bed. You don't have to rake them. That's this year's big lead is to mow your leaves, use a mulching mower, and if there's too many excess, rake them into your flower beds and don't bag them. Don't get rid of yeah, your Yeah, I mean, I've been on that. My, I think it was just my dad was a very straightforward thinker. He was just like, look, this is way easier. <laughs> Neil, my brother, or mow him. Rob can just rake them over into the side and I can watch. <laughs> <laughs> he was just like, why would I bag up all these leaves? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. 
Part of the rebranding with leaving leaves in place in the residential situation is there can be domestic differences of opinion. And I'm speaking from experience because I like to let the leaves lay and watch them break down over the winter. I share the house with someone that is, shall we say, still getting educated. <laughs> still getting educated. That's a beautiful Diplomacy, thing. yes. That's, that's great. Love to hear about the nursery. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, our nursery's grown a lot. So the nursery's only eight years old. So we didn't have that from inception. That was a property of Betty Brown Casey. And it's, it's big, 700 acres, 700 plus acres, and, and about 100 are in production with room to grow that, you know, we wouldn't be clear cutting or anything like that. We have like 30,000 units currently. And, you know, looking to increase that, you know, it's a little tricky, you know, if you are selling eight to 10,000 units and you're planting 10 or 12, it's hard to grow because you're taking and putting in the same amount, but we're looking up to get up to like 40 or so predominantly native species. Got a couple outliers, you know, cherries and metasequoia, you know, ginkgo, London plain, you know, there's, there's some non-natives for sure. We do a strict root control bag, which you guys are probably familiar with, but it's not so mainstream. Uh, typically there's B&B and there's cans and, and we're sort of like a in-between, if you will. And I, and I think there's some advantages to that. One, when you ship it, they're, they're much lighter. Um, there's just less material because you're not loose. You know, a B&B is losing half its roots. The idea between the root bag is it's kind of felt cloth bag that when the roots hit, they're just putting off kind of fibrous, small feeder roots, but you're not taking all of them. So you can, as you take it off, you're not losing as much. And then, you know, opposite to a container, which hits and then takes a left or takes a right and you get circling and girdling, they kind of just hit there and node up a little bit. Mm. And there's no plastic involved. I mean, again, I think that's like a pretty big key, but more than B&B, it's a smaller bag and easier to work with just ergonomically for my team. It's way better. An 18 inch bag is about a 15 inch container. So we're growing like 45 to 50 species with some cultivars, that type of thing. Other non-natives are like cryptomeria. You know, we're just like growing some trees that there's a little niche for that, that we like to utilize. A lot of the new money is being put towards native species, which is fair enough. But yeah, our, our nursery is great right on, the, right on the foothills of the Shenandoah. I mean, the Shenandoah mm-hmm. from the bottom of the field, you could throw a lacrosse ball to. Very close. Incredibly beautiful. Um, but yeah, that, that's been our, that's our kind of niche is, we do this root control bag, which I find very effective. Our transplant rate is very high. It's just not as mainstream. I did meet some people out in Seattle, Washington during Partners last month that they were into it as well, which I was really excited to hear. You'll see it sometimes in like liners. People will grow liners in small, like sevens and threes and fives. You don't see it as much as the final product. And I think it's because it doesn't look as good, quite frankly. A laced up B&B, that's a good looking root ball. You know, the, the, the root bag's a little, you know, it's been in the soil. We're in ground, you know? So we actually have, it's a very cool mechanism. We have an auger, um, a 24 inch auger, which goes down inside a steel conduit. So it goes down, picks up the soil. So the hole is completely empty. We put a 15 gallon container sort of inside our 18 inch bag, put the bag in, and then we dump the soil back in and then just pull the container out and boom, you just have your bag filled with soil. So there's no digging, there's no backfilling. That's just all done mechanically. 
And then you go back in and plant your liner. We, we plant like one or three gallon liners. That's what we do. Yeah, it's a, it's a great product. I think in time, I think it will become more and more um, utilized because I just think like transplant success speaks. You don't have cage in your hole on a street where you oh need gosh, to yeah. stump ground, you know, because it's like, yeah. do, you take, do you take the cage off? You leave it on. What's the BMP this week, you know? And so if it's on, then you're, it's getting hit by the stump grinder. If it's off, then sometimes the roots get loose and you're going to lose the tree anyway. So anyway, that's, that's kind of the, <laughs> the simple run of our farm. I took my students to a nursery, Sam Brown's nursery in Malvern. Mm-hmm who is using the yeah, bags and they them. are so successful with the bags. They, they just don't want to go try any, do any others because they know how the other things work. Right. <laughs> they can, they can load up a truck like within 10 minutes, pull the stuff out of the ground and it's on the truck and gone. And, and the root systems, like you said, are not this real fat, big stuff. But I will say that if you get a smaller tree, the smaller tree with this very fibrous roots is actually going to take off quicker. No question. Than if you have these roots that have been cut, you know, they've been severed, they've been. No question. I mean, that's the other thing about B&Bs. I mean, I used to plant loads of B&Bs, but a big B&B can, unless it's really neglected, can sit in sort of fallow fester for 12 to 15 to 18 months. And then you lose it right when, right when the, the, the warranty is gone. Um, That's exactly right. But yeah. you put these in and they take off. I mean, certain species, tulips, sycamores, sometimes if they're in the right spot, bald cypresses, they will take off. Two years later, you know, they can get eight feet of growth. I mean, I'm, I've seen yeah. it. Exactly. And, and I, the other thing, too, is that when they take off like that, then you don't really have to do a lot of maintenance afterwards, except for the pruning. And that makes a huge difference when it comes to watering and what have you. And once they get established. Yeah, the watering usually for that first summer, try to get a good prune on it, you know, three to five years in. Elms, we try to get to more frequently. We pretty much don't prune our small trees. I mean, we do, but not really. It's yeah, just not yeah. a pri- we prioritize, we kind of create like a matrices for our pruning. And it's just pretty far down the list. More about where it is what species it is and you know some of the ex current trees really can kind of find their own path that said if they don't find their own path <laughs> they have like extra trouble <laughs> and you go in and yeah i mean that you know if you have like a sweet gum that just decided to sort of like split and have codoms you kind of need to get to it but but yeah tulips they don't need a lot of them but elms we try to give a lot of attention to elms because they're worth it and they, they need it. I mean, more like year to every two years. Now, when you're planting, um, you said you don't do a lot of pruning. Do you leave the lower limbs on all the way down to the ground so that the deer don't get to the trees? Yeah, it depends. Deer have become a really big issue. So we deer pro a ton of trees. You know, the sort of permanent height in D.C., depending on where it is, like permanent lower branch height, like for a zero turn, like six, seven feet. Sidewalks is eight feet, roads are 14. So no, I mean, we're certainly not limbing up to permanent height. We typically don't limb up during installation. Most of the nursery, I mean, you know, it depends, like Cryptomeria, Holly, Somag versus, uh, you know, Sweet Gum. But all I will really do during installation is if there's something broken, if there's like some really, really poor unions or just an obvious 
you know, codom that we're really trying to get to. And we might not even completely take it out. We might just subordinate it, just right. slow it down, let the leader take over, come back in two, three, four years and, and remove it just to get that ratio a little bit better. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, we are during inflation, we're, we're hitting big numbers. You know what I mean? So like we're kind of moving on that installation path, but we come back with pruning is huge to us. Uh, we, we spend, you know, a lot of time in the winter and even in the summer, depending on certain species, those are our summer species. So, yeah. I just want to jump back. You ran us through the sequence, Rob, with the fabric bags that you have a system at the bag, 15 gallon, right? Uh-huh. And set down in some kind of conduit. You use your auger, I guess, is mounted on a on a skid steer or something like that. Right. I lost you on the backfill process. Is that just a scoop that's dumping? It so out? no. So that when the auger goes down, like any normal like auger bit, right. Instead of just being loose on the way up, there's a there's a conduit built around. So it's like a sock around it. So as it lifts, it encapsulates all the soil. So you then just have this hole. And so then what we do is we put our bag inside of another sleeve, which is basically a 15-gallon sleeve that's cut vertically so that you can just kind of pull it out. So we then put the bag in and then revert the auger. All the soil goes in, just kind of level it up, pull the sleeve, move on. So we'll just for, you know, we'll just rip bags for, you know, a month. And then we'll get all our liners shipped in, place them all out, and then we'll just plant. I see. So the containers are ready to go. Upon arrival, uh, yeah, ready to go. So that's all in. So I mean, when you're planting, it's just plant, 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 plant. And when you're doing bags, you're just bags, bags, bags. Can I ask you to put on your PR hat and make a YouTube video of that? Uh, You know what? Absolutely, we have something because so our uh, Reed Kemp, our farm manager, just presented at Partners. He was in the Seattle, and he was out there on Tuesday and gave a presentation. But we we have a video, and it's like it's crazy how it's a 15 gallon hole, or you know, ish, maybe a little bigger. You're going down, they pop it in, backfill, little tamp. I mean, 15, 20 seconds, you got done. Yeah. So it's it's quick. Is that something? Is that something we can put on our website for your company? Yeah, let me uh, let me take a quick note of that, and I yes. can probably send you something. That would be cool. That would be awesome. I would. I would yeah, that would be great. Like and that. if you guys are ever down this way, it'd be fun to take you out. It's uh, again, it's really beautiful, and be happy to show you our farm. Yeah, we'd love to see it. Even the name Berryville, Virginia. How Berryville, Virginia. Yep. <laughs> the conference. Am I right? It was called Partners in Community Forestry. Exactly. And it sounds like there was a lot of great energy there. A lot of great energy. Wow. Yeah, uh, especially Arbor Day kind of brings the energy. But yeah, they were they were really, it, it was almost like focused on like passion. Like I think that was even a key word that their you know president or CEO used. It was bringing in a lot of like-minded people, talking about a lot of the problems we all deal with and a lot of the solutions and a lot of the positive things. Certainly recommend it. It was my first time ever going to it and it was networking events and opportunities to talk to many different individuals. And I think Arbor Day puts on a really good event. I don't know. I love that type of thing. I think just being in the same room as people that are thinking the same way you're thinking, you know, when you're having lunch, instead of like being like, you know, someone's like, hey, yeah, can we talk about, uh, can we talk about the weekend? You're talking about trees again, dude. <laughs> you know, you're sitting with people that that's all they want to talk about is trees. So it's fun. Yeah. Is that an annual conference? It is. Well, so actually, I mean, this is a organic plug, but the World Forum on Urban Forestry is coming to D.C., actually. And instead of 
partners, it's going to be this like world venue and it's going to be in DC. You guys should definitely both come. And I think, yeah. you know, many, many people should. When is it going to be? That is, it's 23, fall of 23. Fall. Okay. Yeah. So I'm guessing it was uh, late November. Yeah. I think, I think it's the same time as partners usually. Is. Okay. Okay. That's great. Well, we can put a link on that too. We can. Yeah. We can put a link too for that. Can you give us your favorite tree? And we know that, you know, it could change any minute, but to right this second, what's your favorite tree? I mean, I don't think mine will change any minute or maybe ever, but that's maybe just a personal thing. I mean, I, I got love for, for all the trees, but just growing up, I think I mentioned before I even really knew what I liked about being in the woods, you know, what I liked about being in the forest. It was like, I just knew I liked being there. It was always this one tree, you know, that just grew off the banks of the river, you know, put a rope on it, swing in, climb up it, jump in, you know, during flying home when you're a young kid into D.C. along the river. You just always notice it because it's the, the, the most outstanding bark, you know, you just were like, huh, what is that? And it was just sycamore. For me, it was just always sycamore. It was just the tree that I like always noticed, always knew. And I grew up with one outside right out of my backyard. And I just love them. I just always have, always will. They get big. The Maryland champion tree is a massive sycamore up in Dickerson, Maryland. I just, it was before I even knew what trees were. I never even knew the name of it for probably a decade. You know, I just loved it because of what it like meant to me in my life, you know, being down on the river. So that was, it was always that for me. Yeah, they are special trees. And if you listen real carefully, they might even talk. (laughs) <laughs> what are what are your all special trees? I don't think anyone's ever asked you. Uh oh. Uh oh. Eva. Uh, uh me? Um I like sycamores too. I think they're really special because they not only hold back stormwater, but they have a wonderful capability of ho- having a hollow inside and still be totally stable. Right. If they're outside. And uh, I remember reading some old books when I was in England and they were talking about people who had first come over to the colonies. And they said that there were these trees over in the new world that have people living in them. They were so big. There's a, <laughs> so there's big, one, there's a, there's a, a one room house <laughs> in a tree. And the only tree that it could be is a sycamore. Right. You know, on the way, so in Dickerson, Maryland, on the way to the champion tree, you roll up on this other tree and it's massive. And it's like a, like a tent, like an old kind of one entry, like almost right. Native American style. And, and I'm like, this has got to be the tree. This is so big. And then you sort of look down river and there's just this massive ancient sycamore that's even bigger, you know, mm. and it's kind of grown on this hill. So it's like it's root flare on the high side is like six feet below its root flare on the low side, you know, which is even more sort of fascinating. Yeah, that's one that I've definitely have akin to. I like Jason Lubar's answer. He's the arborist at the Morris Arboretum. He said, I like all trees, but I know Jason pretty well. And part of that is Jason being a little evasive. Uh, (laughs) But to jump in here, I will say my favorite, I have two. I have one conifer and one deciduous. The deciduous is going to be Australia Virginiana. Love that. Great bark. Big bark guy over here. <laughs> yeah, great bark. Yeah. And I have one in the front yard that transplanted from central New York when the kids were little and the tree was about as tall as a, a pencil. And of course, now it's as tall as the house. 
And then the the conifer is uh, Juniperus virginiana, red cedar. Yeah, the great one. Yeah, sure. In fact, I pencil tree. And the pencil say, tree. What's yes. a, what? What's the? Why is it called the pencil tree? Because the wood is so straight, and you can make pencils out of it, and that's what they did. And they they were able to slip a drill bit down and just slide no into it. <laughs> And that's why pencils, when you go into a classroom, you always had that smell, that kind of funny smell. It was the cedar, cedar. from the, the, the sharpeners, oh. the pencil sharpeners. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I love, yeah, they're, I mean, talk about a warrior tree, Hal, yeah. you know? I mean, those <laughs> will just grow on the side of a fence from the local bird and, you know, they don't need anything. Those yeah. are good. And we grow Australia, we grow both of those, uh, but I like Australia a bunch as well. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. We really appreciate it. The time goes by so quickly. I knew the time would go fast. <laughs> yeah, yes. it was a pleasure. It really was. I'd love to keep talking shop. Maybe we'll have to all get together in D.C. or for the World Forum. So World Forum, 16th to 20th of October, 2023. October, 2023. Super. Well, hopefully we'll see you either at Mance or some of the events that are happening I'll be up at Manth on the 13th, I believe. So uh, I hope to see you there. But yeah, it was a pleasure chatting with you both. Your podcast is great. I enjoy listening to it. Good. Thanks so much. You've been a great guest. Thanks so much for your time and uh, happy new year to you, Rob. Hey, happy new year. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.